Our reading for today comes from the fifth chapter of Matthew, verses 13 through 20. Listen for the word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and gives it light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May God grant me to speak with judgment and to have thoughts of what I have received. For God is the guide even of wisdom and the corrector of the wise. For both we and our words are in God's hand, as are all understanding and all skill in crafts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. In yesterday's Wall Street Journal, the columnist Peggy Noonan wrote, We are living through big history, and no one here in Washington knows where it's going or how this period ends. Everyone left, right, and center, feels the earth is unsteady under their feet. Everyone's political views are now emotions, and everyone now wears their emotions on their faces. People are speaking more loudly and quickly than usual. The decibel level hits the ceiling right away and stays there. Battle lines are sharply drawn, and no one is especially interested in understanding the other side. Every Sunday I relish the 10 or 15 minutes that I have greeting you all as you come in to worship, if you come through this door, as you leave going out that door, or then seeing you in Fellowship Hall afterward. I want to share with you comments from various members of Westminster directed at me or that I've heard directly over the past several weeks. They are either direct quotes or slight paraphrases. I've been working with the administration's transition team and I hope it leads to a full-time position. My spouse is leaving a position to join Bernie's Senate staff. I have accepted a position with the administration because I think they need good, experienced people. 
My spouse is considering leaving the firm and going into immigration law. I've been as happy as a clam since November the 9th. My internist recommends 12.5 milligrams of Benadryl for sleeplessness, and it works. I know members of our congregation who attended President Trump's President Trump's inauguration. I know members who marched the next day. I wouldn't be surprised if I found someone who did both, and in fact, after the early service, someone came forward. The range of political opinion and involvement is one of the many reasons it is a remarkable honor and a challenge to serve as a pastor in this congregation. During this season in which big history is being made, the churches of Jesus Christ around the world that follow the liturgical calendar are spending time with the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we heard the Beatitudes, which at first glance are a bit, bit hard to classify as big history in any traditional sense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Today we have just heard read Jesus' words that immediately followed the Beatitudes. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can saltiness be restored? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The light of the world and a city on the hill are phrases that we heard in Sunday school as children and then in American history classrooms in high school or college. The salt of the earth is a phrase our parents used to describe family members or perhaps neighbors who are quiet, unassuming, solid, reliable. As I said last Sunday, when Jesus uses these phrases, he is speaking to the four disciples he has recently called, James and John, Simon and Andrew, and to a larger set of followers who fan out from them on the mountain on which he has assumed the rabbinical posture of sitting so that he may begin his teaching in what is essentially his inaugural sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, you are a city on a hill, the you is plural. Thus, though Jesus himself never uses the word church, he is describing what not only the individual life of the Christian is to be, but also what the followers of Jesus Christ collectively and communally are to be. He is describing the church. 
Jesus draws these phrase, phrases of light and city from the prophet Isaiah. In days to come, Isaiah says, the mountain or city of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of all the mountains and shall be raised above the hills and nations shall stream to it. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and they shall study war no more. O house of Jacob, Isaiah continues, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. At times in its history, the church has aspired to be the light of the world in a city on a hill. The latter phrase became particularly formative in American history as well, particularly in that religious instinct that was instrumental in leading the original Puritans to settle the new world. Before arriving in Massachusetts aboard the Arbella in 1630, John Winthrop preached to his fellow pilgrims, for we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. But in the Sermon on the Mount, these phrases of light of the world and city on a hill are balanced by the most commonly used but least understood phrase in the sermon, the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth is one of those phrases that we all know its meaning, but we can't really define it. We use it to describe people who are solid, reliable, caring, good, decent, kind, but not very dramatic. Not very exciting. Not very bold. Rarely are leaders described as the salt of the earth. No university president would be introduced to her new community as the salt of the earth. Few parents, in fact I have never heard a parent, brag to their friends at a cocktail party at the country club that their son or daughter is about to marry someone who is the salt of the earth. Unless that son or daughter has previously been married to someone who is anything but. In the 14th century, Patriarch wrote, if you want to take the measure of the greatness of a person, don't count the ships that have been launched and the battles won and the books written. But catch the person in that moment of insignificance attending to a matter trifling apparently and you will have the real revelation of the character of that person. The little things, trifling 
apparently. I once heard a powerful lecture and sermon in New York by a scholar or preacher named Renita Weems who halfway through the lecture paused to tell her spellbound audience, the most important thing I will do today is as soon as this lecture is over, fly home to Nashville, hop a, ca hop a cab to my daughter's school, help her into her tutu, and watch her dance recital from the front row. Neither ships, nor battles, nor books written, but matters of insignificance, trifling apparently. These are what salt the earth so the city can rise on the hill and spread light to all the world. As Jesus talks further in the Sermon on the Mount, much of, much of what he says involves being the salt of the earth. When you're offering your gift at the altar, he says, when you're coming forward for communion and you remember that someone has something against you, go and be reconciled with that person. Then come and receive the bread and wine. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything else is from the devil. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other as well. If anyone demands that you go one mile, go two. If anyone asks you for your coat, give them your cloak as well. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Judge not that ye be not judged. Why do you see that speck in your neighbor's eye when you've still got that log in your own eye? The little things. The little things. John Winthrop moved from his eloquence about the early Puritans being a city on a hill as to how they might accomplish that. Now the only way to avoid this shipwreck, he said, and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other with brotherly affection. 
We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities. Can you pronounce that? I can't. For the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together. In all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. Speaking to people who have made a transoceanic voyage on a ship in the 17th century. We must make others' conditions our own. Rejoice together, mourn together, labor, and suffer together. Always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work, our community as members of the same body, so shall we keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Abridge ourselves of our superfluities. Make others' conditions our own. It's the little things that salt the earth where the city on the hill can be built that lights the world. Some of you know that since Maggie and I moved into our home in this neighborhood that direction four years ago, we've lived across the street from the person who has recently been appointed President Trump's press secretary, Sean Spicer. For the most part, the people on our street have children at home, and since we are beyond the years for such, Given how busy we are working and how busy they are parenting and working, we've not really become personal friends with any of our neighbors. But the Spicers live directly across the street from us, and we've had more interaction with them as neighbors than with others on our block. We sometimes share mulch, or at least the intention to mulch. We share a common handyman who's employed almost full-time between us. We alternate shoveling snow for the elderly woman who lives alone next door. One Saturday night, Maggie's daughter Hannah and I were trying to move a tall bookcase up our narrow stairwell. It became stuck, and we were stuck. Sean noticed, came over to help. And all went much better. This past week, we decided to have removed the giant oak tree that has defined our front yard and really the top part of the street for over 75 years. We've been nursing it along each year, knowing that the neighbors have grown increasingly nervous as each year the leaves are a little thinner. 
When Maggie and I left early yesterday morning, Rebecca Spicer was loading the SUV for a family outing. We called out to her yard and pointed to the big sections of trunk that are still in the front yard like an abstract sculpture garden. We pointed and said, we only took that tree out so your children can start playing in their front yard and don't have to sleep in the basement anymore. She said, we've taken four old oaks out. It is never easy. It's always sad. On the night of November 9th, I pulled into the driveway about 10 p.m. and saw Sean, as he often is late at night, in jogging clothes, walking the family dog, talking on his cell phone. I walked over to him and tapped him on the shoulder. Congratulations, I said. He held the cell phone away and said thank you. About 15 minutes later, Maggie drove up from Silver Spring. He was still in his jogging clothes, still walking the now well-walked dog, still on the phone. She walked up to him and tapped him on the shoulder. I'm happy your family can now have you back. Me too, he said, holding the phone away. But in this new position, they won't. I am aware that in this small town known as Washington, D.C., many of us have neighbors who vault to 15 minutes of fame, some longer, and who then return to the blessed obscurity in which most of us live most of our lives. But in our city, in our nation and world, and in our congregation, when everyone's political views are emotions and when the decibel level hits the ceiling and stays there, we must each live out our political commitments, our moral commitments, our religious commitments as differing as they are as neighbors. Each of us must express and live out our moral and political passions with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love as citizens of this wonderful country and as members of this wonderful congregation. And we must do so, at least in this congregation, as people striving to be friends deep friends, friends who share a commitment to the Messiah who was born in our midst, who was baptized as we are baptized, who was tempted in every way as we are tempted yet without sin. The Christ who died for us, who rose for us, who reigns in power for us, and perhaps most importantly, who prays for us. The Christ who names us salt and places us in this city and who never stops calling us to be 
the light of the world. Amen.